Hello, my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the latest episode of Coronavirus Stories. This time, the story of how the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban and his right-wing Fidesz party have used the coronavirus crisis to take unprecedented powers to themselves for an undefined period of time. Fidesz are by far the largest party in Parliament and have taken advantage of that to grant Orban sweeping new powers. To explain what's going on, Emily Tamkin, who wrote an article about this for The New Statesman. Now, Emily is the magazine's US editor, but she's also the author of a forthcoming book about Hungarian-born investor and philanthropist George Soros, a supporter of liberal causes, who has become something of a bogeyman for Viktor Orban's government. Soros, who is Jewish, survived the Nazi occupation of Budapest, and his opposition to the narrow nationalism represented by Fidesz is an important part of the context of this story, even if it feels like it's a long way from the pandemic. I asked Emily to begin by telling me exactly what the Hungarian government has done. Basically, this bill gives Orban unprecedented power, right? It declares a state of emergency. It allows him to rule by decree. It makes misinformation, which is obviously a subjective term, right, in, in today's political climate all over the world, punishable by up to five years in prison. Parliament is effectively rendered moot, and it does all of this for an undefined period of time. There's no sort of sunset clause, there's no end date. It just enhances. Viktor Orban's powers for the foreseeable future. And I think what listeners need to appreciate is that it's not just that these changes were made. It's the context of the Hungarian political situation, right? The context in which they were made. So Orban came back to power in 2010. He's currently in his third consecutive term. And since he's come back to power, he and his government have changed the constitution they, his sort of friends of Orban have bought up much of the Hungarian media space. Free media, independent media has been dismissed as fake news. Perhaps most famously, he's created this campaign against migrants and asylum seekers, going so far as in 2018, the government made it, uh, ran a series of Stop Soros or, or, or had this Stop Soros law, which made it illegal to help migrants and asylum seekers. So if you were an activist, if you were a lawyer, you now risked breaking the law by helping this vulnerable population. NGOs that receive foreign funding have to register and have had to register since 2017 as as being, quote unquote, uh, foreign, foreign sourced. More recently, they've had a national consultation on the Roma, the ethnic minority, which is just a, a vulnerable minority th- throughout Europe to try to reinstate social norms is the way the government put it, or reinstate social morals. These are all populations, NGOs, members of the free press, the Roma population, migrants and asylum seekers, all of these groups now become even more vulnerable because his powers become even more unchecked. For me, there are two questions really. And one is, what happens if we collectively say, okay, we're going to suspend civil rights, suspend whatever, suspend these checks on the government, during this crisis, well, here you have a government and a leader that's tried to suspend those checks without a crisis. So now what do they do now that they have these powers? And will they lift? Will they be given back once the pandemic is over? So let's be clear, though, this is a coronavirus story. 
The pandemic has been the reason given, some people might say the excuse or the pretext given for this unprecedented power grab in a, in a Western democracy. The reason that this law was, that this bill was put forth and the law was passed was ostensibly to fight the pandemic. And this is the reason that I stress the context, right? Because if this were, I mean, I think any citizen anywhere, any country in the world has a right to kind of question its government taking greater power and greater authority. But in a health crisis, in a global pandemic, certain liberties are given up and they are given up with the understanding that the government will do what it need to, needs to do to get you through this pandemic and then reinstate your civil liberties. The reason that it's so concerning is in Hungary, I think, is that it's unclear whether this government is doing this because it needs to, to get through this pandemic and to keep Hungarian citizens safe, or if it is using the pandemic as a pretense for a power grab. And in the UK, for example, restrictions on Free movement were introduced in response to the pandemic. The government had originally planned that they would be in place for two years, but following lobby lobbying by opposition politicians, the two years was reduced to six months. So these powers have to be at least reviewed every six months. But you're saying in terms of the draconian powers that Orban and his party have introduced in Hungary, there is no sunset clause. There is no end date for which these draconian powers apply. Right. And some have sort of said, well, parliament could end this at any time. Well, okay, but parliament is Fidesz, right? Two thirds of parliament is Orban's, is occupied by Orban's party. And further elections have been suspended for the entirety of the state of emergency. So if Orban doesn't want to, if he is the leader of this, uh, as you know, the, the, the power that is in Hungary and then this party says, no, we're not ending it, then I kind of fail to see how it ends. And the UK is a great point. I mean, you can look at the UK, you can look at in Washington, DC yesterday, you know, we're, we're a stay at home city now where you are only supposed to go out for essentials and, you know, you sports and large groups are banned, etc. And that is understandable because again, we're in a global health crisis and a global pandemic. And I want to be clear that I'm not saying that the, that the fact that any government would instate these regulations is in and of itself concerning. It's concerning that there aren't the checks that you're talking about, right? That, that came up in the UK where people said, well, wait a minute, no, you have to you have to clear this every six months. This is not, in Hungary, I, I don't believe that we're talking about a society where there are those robust checks to make sure that civil liberties are reinstated and to make sure that this is not just an increase of a liberalism that's never brought down again. Hmm. This isn't just a, a liberal reflex, though, against a prime minister who is regarded as right wing. Some people might say even far right by Western European standards, is it? I mean, is there anything that Hungarian people cannot do today that they could do yesterday that, that ought to trouble us? Yes, because if you're a, a member of the free press in Hungary and you write something and the government says it's misinformation, you are now more likely to go to jail. Or another part of the law is that if you break the quarantine rules, you, you could spend five to eight years in prison. If we're talking about a government that has gone after migrants, asylum seekers, and the Roma, right? I don't know that we can necessarily trust that a law like that or a regulation like that is not used against the more vulnerable. 
So we've got this sense of creeping authoritarianism in Hungary. And the other factor at play here then is that of George Soros, about whom you've written a book, Hungarian-born investor, philanthropist, and an advocate of many of the causes that Viktor Orban apparently despises. So Soros has kind of been used as a boogeyman, specifically in Hungary, but also throughout Central and Eastern Europe, and indeed in the world here in the United States too. And absolutely, as you say, he has, particularly in Orban's more recent terms in power, because he gives so much money to NGOs and but also just because of who he is and what he represents, right? So he's Hungarian, but he left Hungary. He's Jewish. He made his money in finance. He lives in New York. He's an easy person onto whom to project sort of these nefarious intentions, even though he has, of course, not been trying to take refugees and asylum seekers and flood uh, Hungary with them. That's not ever something that he's proposed. Even so, his name was attached to the Stop Soros law that made it illegal or, or criminalized helping asylum seekers and migrants. You know, his open society foundations moved their offices from Budapest to Berlin because the staffers there felt threatened. And, you know, you can say, well, they were never really under threat, but the sense of the, just that sense of insecurity, I think, is quite telling. His university, the university that Soros founded in the early 1990s, Central European University, has largely been kicked out of Budapest and is moving to Vienna. And the thing that I think is, I mean, there's a lot that somebody can say about Soros for sort of for good or maybe not for ill, but out of criticism. But, you know, he he did give a million euros yesterday to this, or Open Society did to the city in which he hid out as a youth. And because it's going through a difficult time, even though, right, his foundation had to leave and even though his university has been largely turned out. And I also think it's worth noting that, uh, maybe your listeners know this, but maybe they don't, that Orban, when he was much younger, went to Oxford University on a, score, on a Soros scholarship. Some of the student publications that Fidesz, or a student publication that Fidesz, Orban's party back when it was a student group, that it put out in the late, in late Easter block days, back when it was like a pro-democratic, anti-socialism, fight the power, <laughs> the seed of what it would one day become, uh, that was funded by by Soros as well. Is the antagonism that Orban shows towards Soros, is it is it too simple to say, given that he's a, a Jewish emigre financier living in New York, who is broadly supportive of liberalism and helping asylum seekers and refugees, is it too simple to say that it's just ugly, old-fashioned anti-Semitism? His government would certainly push back against that and say, no, no, it's not that he's it's not that he's Jewish. And no, we just don't like him because he's he doesn't believe in nationalism and we believe in national sovereignty. And I don't discount that they disagree with him politically and that that is the root of it. But of course, I mean, it's a dog whistle. Right. So, no, it's not too simplistic to say that, because if you didn't want people to think that you were being anti-Semitic, you wouldn't get up during your re-election campaign and say something like, we're fighting a rootless enemy, right, of, of speculators. Like, there's no way. And this is this is a part of the world that historically has been so fraught with anti-Semitism. People know what those words mean. And if you, a Hungarian government official, are going to say something like that 
or defend your boss, the prime minister saying something like that, and then turn around and say, well, no, 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 it's just that he's a globalist. Well, you and I both know the globalism, the globalist, quote unquote, is a is another anti-Semitic buzzword. And you don't need to come out. I, I think the real beauty or ugliness rather of this is that they don't, they never need to say the word Jewish or Jew, right? You can say speculator, anti-national, New York, and people's synapses light up, which makes him an attractive political opponent, certainly more attractive than building up and legitimizing an actual political opponent against whom Orban might actually run, who could actually challenge his power and premiership. Yeah, you can say things without saying things in other words. Absolutely, absolutely. It does give a real problem to the European Union, doesn't it, to have such an apparently illiberal government as a member of the EU, an organisation dedicated to pooling nationality and to a, a more liberal, progressive view of politics. What can or will the EU do? I'm not sure what, if anything, the EU is going to do, because this is not, this has been coming for a long time in Hungary, right? Like Orban did not decide yesterday that he was going to be a liberal. He spoke in 20, he, in 2014, he gave a speech saying like, we're showing it the way to be an illiberal democracy. You know, the, the anti-Soros stuff has been building for, for years now. The EU to this point has not really done anything. And indeed, the statement that they put out, that the, I think it was the commission put out, didn't name Hungary. So that does not say to me that they have recognized that this is a problem and are going to um, make a full-throated defense of rule of law and a check on a check on Orban's power at the EU level. Really interesting stuff, Emily. Thank you for your time. And it's curious to think that this global pandemic, this virus, could be a cloak in this way for authoritarianism. Yeah, thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Emily Tamkin from The New Statesman and her book about George Soros, The Influence of Soros, is due to be published in the summer of 2020. Thank you to her and thanks to you for listening. You can follow the progress of this podcast via my Twitter account, at Goldberg Radio. And don't forget, if you've got a coronavirus story to share, please drop me an email, goldbergradio at gmail.com. Cheers and stay safe.